G'day and welcome to Talking Finance, the Constant Investor's weekly podcast radio show. Today we're talking finance about the Australian economy, the new super rules, Google jobs and international tax. But let's get stuck straight into the March quarter national accounts out yesterday. And let's not dwell on the fact that it's now June, two months and a week after the end of the quarter. The Chinese statisticians do it in two weeks. At least the hard-working number crunches at the ABS don't start with the answer. And then having found it, don't change it as the Americans do, two or three times. So what did our statisticians come up with? 0.3% growth for the quarter, 1.7% for the year. As always, there's plenty of devil in the detail, but I started my discussion with David Plank of ANZ Research by getting his view of the overall state of the economy. Well, there wasn't much really, I suppose. Um, In fact, we headed up our more in-depth look on uh, the Q1 GDP with the title losing my momentum. So growth has slowed. It's in annual terms, the weakest since um, mid-2009, up just 0.3% for the quarter, um, down a lot from Q4, and, and I suppose repeating or continuing the pattern we've seen in recent quarters where we've had quite a volatile um, up-and-down uh, pattern, particularly obviously in Q3 last year where GDP actually fell. I suppose the good news was GDP didn't fall. Uh, we weren't expecting that, but there were a number of people who were worried about that. So. Um, I suppose that was the, the good news, that we did manage to eke out some growth. And the other good news, perhaps, is that we've uh, broken the record. 100 and, uh, what is yeah. it, 103 quarters, or is it 100 and, I can't remember, 103 quarters of continuous expansion? Well, it, it hasn't been continuous. We have had negative quarters in that. I mean, it's relying on a very arbitrary two quarters of negative growth uh, as a definition of a recession, which is a very poor definition in my, in my view. But, yeah, I think... Uh, well, it's all, we've, it's all we've got, David. <laughs> I'd, I'd rather focus on uh, per capita growth as well. If we do that, then perhaps our story isn't quite as strong as it looks. Well, tell us what it does look like as per capita growth, which I think is significant given the strength of population growth. Yeah, so per capita growth is very weak, actually. And, it, you know, we have seen at times per capita growth be very soft. I mean, Australia's strong population growth means that if we look at headline GDP, it's exaggerated. If we look at GDP in per capita terms, then there was a period in 08, 09 where we went decidedly backwards. So, you know, I think that's a more accurate representation of what's going on than sort of aggregate GDP because getting bigger can always make you look better. But I think uh, we should be talk- focusing on getting richer, not getting bigger. One of the things that a lot of people focused on was the decline in uh, the household savings rate back down to towards 5%. And that kind of, in a sense, indicates quite a broad theme in the economy, which is low wages growth, consumption being held up by uh, dipping into savings. We haven't dipped into savings. I mean, we're still saving. We're just not saving as much. So savings, yeah, fell from 5.1% in Q4 to 4.7%. And then now they've more than halved from their post-GFC high or their high during the GFC. Um, you know, that, that high of sort of 10% or more that we saw back in the 08 to sort of 2010-11 period, I suppose was artificially high, driven by you know, the shock of the GFC and falling house prices. And it was always likely to come down. I think, though, in the last year or so, you're right, we've seen uh, households uh, reduce their savings quite sharply. And I think that's a reflection of uh, very weak income growth. Uh, and if you look at where the consumption was, a lot of the consumption was on uh, that we did get in, in Q1 was kind 
kind of on non-discretionary items, which would suggest that consumers would have liked to have spent less if they could have, if they could have gotten away with it, but they couldn't given uh, sort of price pressures in the non-discretionary areas. And the key really is going forward is will households continue to reduce their savings rate? And when we look at consumer sentiment and some of the other indicators, we suspect there's um, a good chance that savings might broadly go sideways from here. And if the saving rate broadly goes sideways, then household consumption growth will be very soft. Um, of course, if income growth remains soft, it may be that households, even if they want to keep their savings where they are, are unable to just because they you know, uh, income growth is so weak, in which case um, the savings rate could continue to fall, but I think it'll be doing so. And if, if that does happen, I think it'll be against the wishes of consumers. And so it has implications for, certainly for discretionary spending. In fact, do you think that because of these factors, the chances of a recession are beginning to rise? You know, calling a recession is always very difficult and, and something, you know, that uh, happens so seldom, particularly in Australia's case, that it's it's not really a, a wise thing to do. I, th- I think that certainly growth in Q2 looks like it'll continue to be soft. It's very hard to see much of a bounce, if any, from the softness that we saw in, in Q1. There'll be some areas where we get a bounce. Probably housing won't be as weak. Uh, uh, but net exports might still be soft given the impact of uh, Cyclone Debbie. We also think profits will probably fall given lower commodity prices and the very strong rise we've had over the last couple of quarters. And I think household consumption will continue to be pretty soft. So, you know, I don't see much of, a, if any, chance of a bounce in Q2. But, you know, I think there are some reasons to think that we'll continue to eke out growth, certainly in a headline sense. Over the second half of the year, it's certainly true that businesses are pretty optimistic. Business profitability is high. I think we're seeing a pickup in non-mining business investment, which I think will continue. Uh, we've seen employment growth, so that's good. I think exports will return after you know sort of weakness in the first half of the year, which is largely weather-related, I think. So I think we'll see a return to exports. Um, but a lot of that growth is sort of growth that doesn't necessarily benefit households directly though employment growth will help. And if we look at growth in per capita terms, then, again, I think um, the headline figures will overstate significantly how well we're doing because, as you said before, you know, Australia's strong population growth tends to disguise um, you know, how we're doing in per capita terms. Was there anything that particularly jumped out at you from the detail as you looked at the detail of the national accounts? No, well, we were actually forecasting 0.3, so the numbers themselves came in relatively... Um, close to what we were thinking. Um, the savings rate dipped more than we thought, so that was a bit of a surprise perhaps. But the numbers themselves were reasonably close to what we had had thought. I think the story, the theme that comes out of it though is, is one of soft growth, no inflation, and looking forward, very hard to see how we can get the acceleration to the kind of 3% growth that we previously thought we might be able to get to. We've, we've Thing now thinking that this pullback in consumption, the softer wages is, is a longer running story, so that's going to be reflected in our numbers going forward. And I think if that's right, then the, the 3% forecast that the RBA and the Treasury have, and that we used to have, will be very, very difficult to achieve. What do you think it all means for interest rates? Well, I don't necessarily think there's much that lower interest rates can do in this. I mean, what, what monetary policy does is it changes the timing of growth, really, not not, if you like, can't really do much in terms of the where the economy is going to end up over the long term. And I think one of the issues is that you know we 
avoided a, a sharper slowdown than we experienced through the mining when mining uh, pulled back sharply because we essentially borrowed growth forward in terms of lower interest rates boosting housing and, and consumption. But as we've seen, there's only that can only work for so long and eventually there's payback. And I think what we're seeing now is the payback from borrowing growth forward and, and nothing has really come in to replace it. What we really need to see, I think, is structural measures that are aimed at lifting the um, long-term growth performance of Australia, and that's not anything the RBA can do about it. And the RBA has been talking about that for quite a few years, so they're, they're well aware of that. They're well aware that they can't uh, lick, sustainably lift Australia's growth rate. That comes down to businesses, uh, the private sector, but also, obviously, government in terms of uh, longer-term policy reforms. I suppose the only thing that can really replace domestic investment and consumption is net exports, both services and perhaps um, uh, natural gas. Are there signs, do you think, that that will happen? I think it will happen on the natural gas side. I would argue, though, that Australia essentially boosts GDP, but I'm not sure we benefit from that, given uh, all the issues around that that have been canvassed in terms of tax revenue and so on, or lack of tax revenue from that. So it'll help GDP, but it doesn't really boost us. Yeah, I think there's positive signs on the you know, on the services side from the export point of view, and I think that's a long-term trend. But when you look, you know, that's still a relatively small part of the economy, and even significant growth rates there, they help, but they're not going to replace soft consumption. I think what we really need ultimately is lift in wages, and that are funded by higher productivity, not just higher wages per se, but... And so, we need higher productivity, and uh, to get that, we need productivity enhancing reform, which we haven't had for a while. The release of the March quarter national accounts a week or so into June is also usually a signal that it's time to think about tax, and this year to think about super. Specifically, you've got three weeks to shovel as much into super as you can, up to $540,000. I've got Maria Dyson of Omni Wealth Financial Advisors on the phone to explain why. That's the amount that you can have paying you a tax-free pension and which incurs no tax on the actual earnings within the account as well. So um, the account balance $1.6 million at 1 July 2017. That can continue in its tax-free state and continue to pay a tax-free pension. But that's, that's it. No more. Right, and, and does that also apply to any lump sum you take out? I mean, is that um, can you can you get because at the moment you can get uh, money out tax free after retirement. Does that um, does that include uh, within the one point six? No. So you, if you have a, a one point six million tax free pension account and you also have an accumulation account, you can still take a tax free lump sum from your accumulation account. It's just the the actual assets in that account, the earnings on those assets will be taxed at the 15% tax rate now. So that's up until the point at which you take them out as a lump sum, take the money out as a lump sum. Correct. Yeah, yeah. So in, in some cases, it's uh, more beneficial to actually take the amount out of the super system completely. And um, if your tax rate is lower than that 15% externally, external to the super fund. So um, there's a bit of planning to be done around that, obviously. 
So, so for example, if you had $2 million in super, you could take 400000 out as a, a, a tax-free lump sum uh, yeah. and keep $1.6 in a pension account that was also continued to be tax-free. But obviously that 400000 you took out um, would be taxable you know, if once you invested it, the ta- you know the income on once that, it's, yeah, the, the the income on that would be fully taxable. But if you left it in super, it'd be taxed at fifteen percent. Correct. Yeah. What if? And quite often this happens. The man in a relationship has a, a large super balance, and the woman, the wife, has a small one, or the other way around, perhaps. But if there are unequal balances within a relationship in a marriage, what's the best way to deal with that? Depends on the age and the and the working status of the couple, but if the husband is still working and over age sixty five, he can take out as much as he wants as a lump sum. And if the wife is also working and sixty five or not sixty five even, they can then contribute that to the their super balance so that has the effect of evening out account balances and therefore they combined have a have a bigger tax-free pension to draw from. Well, in fact, they can have up to $3.2 million, I guess, can they? Yeah, correct. But obviously it depends on age. And so if, if the wife is, and, and if this is happening this year, and we've actually done uh, this strategy, and I've just done this recently with a client who had drawn, so the husband's still working, he's 65, um, he drew 540000 out of his super balance. His wife is 60, 61. Um, so she's not working, but there's no restriction. She doesn't have to meet the work test because she's below age 65. So she contributed the 540 into her account and therefore had the effect of, of evening them out slightly, although she's still got a way to go to, to match his. He can take the money out of his super account and just give it to her and she puts it into her account. Yep. Right. Within the limits, of course. Oh, well, that's, that's all right. So because he's still working and he's 65, there's no restrictions on how much he can draw from the super fund. Is there anything in particular that people should be doing between now and June 30 to get ready for this? So they've got built-up capital and uh, we're thinking of making a super contribution and it's more than the 300000 that will be allowable from next financial year, then they should certainly do that this year. I mean, I've had clients wanting to sell properties and things like that to get the 540 in each because that's reduced to 300 from next year. That's the bring forward rule on the non-concessional contributions. You can put up to 540000 in before June 30. Correct, if you're under age 65. One of the key messages for June is to shovel as much money that you've got outside of super into super, if you can, up to 540000 because you're going to be taxed at 15% um, in there. And if it's uh, up to $1.6 or less than $1.6 in your balance, you might get no tax at all. Yeah, that's right. I mean, yeah, that's quite a broad statement. And as you know, we, we don't... We can't give advice unless we understand the full uh, client situation. But if that, if those funds were to be earmarked for superannuation, and uh, but not till next year or something, and you can afford to do it this year, then you would certainly do it now rather than next year. Otherwise, you're restricted to that three hundred from next year.
And speaking of super, global accounting bodies, including the Australian Chartered Accountants and the International Federation of Accountants, have just finished a worldwide survey of attitudes to taxation, focusing mainly on company tax avoidance, but one of the things they asked about was tax breaks for retirement savings. Chaz Roy Chowdhury of the Association of Chartered Certified Accountants in Hong Kong is on his way to Australia to present the findings, so I tracked him down to get some details. Well, across the whole survey, there was a lot of support for um, retirement planning. So it's really fairly marginal, the um, level of additional support for Australia. So it's 1% or 2%. And uh, when you look across the G20 countries, there is overwhelming support for uh, retirement planning breaks, tax breaks. And more support for that than other types of tax breaks, would you say? Yes. Well, I guess not surprisingly, because it's individually, uh, it affects individuals. There was a lot of uh, support across the G20 countries for that. And even though the respondents could have been, uh, they varied in age because we wanted to have a a representative sample of the public. There's still a lot of support for retirement planning across the board and across all of the G20 countries. In fact, G19, because the EU is one of the G20, and obviously we we didn't um, specifically have someone or have people for the EU, but we have the UK, we've got Germany, we've got France as a part of the representative population for the EU. So I suppose that would uh, tend to make you think that tax incentives for retirement planning are pretty safe because the public wants them and therefore politicians tend to do what the public wants. I think there's always quite a, there's a whittling away or there's adjustments going on all the time around the level of tax breaks for retirement. For example, in the UK, we've had the overall lifetime saving allowance reduced year after year over the last five, six years. In Australia, you've had uh, tinkering with the retirement allowance and the way that payments are paid out, whether taxed on the way out or, or not, whether you get the relief on the way in. And in the US, they have they set the level on an annual basis, the amount you can pay in. So it, um, politicians love to tinker with tax. And I guess retirement allowances, tax breaks for retirement are, are quite a, they're quite expensive. And I, I suppose that's why they are a potential target. But then again, it's a vote loser if uh, politicians tinker too much with them. Perhaps that explains why they keep getting booted out. Yes, yes, it could well be. Now, um, on another matter, there's a lot of focus, including in Australia, on what's called Google taxation or the recovering of tax avoided by uh, multinational corporations. Do you think that that is uh, likely long-term to be successful? Well, the diverted profits tax, which uh, started in the UK, is jumping the gun in some ways from the BEPS, the base version of profit-shifting work of the OECD, uh, which our survey focuses on to or is if you like the reason why we did the survey because of the work that the um the OECD have undertaken on behalf of the G twenty. I think there is clearly a need to make sure that we have a low level playing field for all businesses, whether multinationals or local businesses. But I think we need to make sure that the same rules apply globally and we don't end up with double taxation, which I think is a danger, certainly in terms of the US, the UK version of the diverted profits tax. I think in Australia, you have a, a less uh, onerous version. And what the diverted profits tax tries to do is actually uh, prejudge the definition of a permanent establishment, as it's called. So therefore, determining where the multinational pays tax. And it could well be that um, 
the multinational, certainly in the UK context, has to has to go through a lot of paperwork just to show that it doesn't owe any tax in the UK. And that kind of bureaucracy or that administration cannot be very helpful in terms of attracting multinationals. I think Australia has probably got the balance better because it doesn't, uh, if you like, uh, sort of create a, a lot of administration. But then again, it is changing some of the rules around permanent establishment. So I think we just need to be careful how this lands and we don't have multinationals not doing business in uh, in a given country. I suppose that's why I asked the question, I mean, as to whether it's been successful, because it seems to me that to some extent, by definition, if these diverted profits taxes are successful, that they must disrupt the international taxation treaties that have already been in existence for so long. Yes, well, that's exactly it. And I think one of the, one of the issues we have is basically the BEPs, the base erosion profit shifting work of the OCD had or has 15 action points. And action 14 is about, is called dispute resolution. So it's to deal with the disputes between countries and businesses and companies to with the changes in the the tax rules. And so um, in terms of the way that the tax rules have changed or the way that countries, as I say, that the UK has jumped the gun and I guess Australia to some extent is, is the same uh, before the proper implementation of the BEPS, um, the, the BEPS solutions, the BEPS outcomes as they're known as, um, there will be disputes and we could end up with companies, as you say, with double taxation. And we say, so the last thing we want to do is actually have companies paying double tax because um, taxes, a company will always pass on taxes, it's always a cost to the company. So it'll either be in terms of higher prices or lower wages or lower dividends and dividends affect pensions. So I think it's not free that governments actually get tax out of multinationals. So they need to make sure they don't double tax the multinationals, which are then passing on that cost to the individual. And finally, Google. Not satisfied with dominating internet search and just about everything else to do with the internet, Google has launched a new job search engine. If you're an investor in Seek or thinking about becoming one, you need to know about this and about what the number one global job search engine at the moment, called Indeed, is doing as well. It's a bit like that cartoon with various sizes of fish eating each other. Indeed is coming after Seek. Google is coming after Indeed. And Seek, for that matter. To get a sense of what's going on, I spoke to Paul Darcy, a senior vice president of Indeed in Austin, Texas. We have... A tremendous amount of respect for Google. They're an incredible company, and their mission to help organize the world's information is something that they've done an amazing job at over the preceding decades. For us, though, job search is probably the most important search that someone does in their life. And when someone searches for a job, say accounting jobs in Sydney or marketing jobs in Melbourne, there are many, many jobs to choose from to match that person up to the right opportunity. And for us, we've spent more than a decade working on the technology, the approach, the data to be able to match job seekers to the right jobs. And it didn't feel uh, right for us to um, let someone else without the data and the information that we have to try to match job seekers to the right opportunities that are out there. We think we can do that better than Google and are, as a result, um, you know, taking our own separate path going forward. 
I guess the problem for you would be that they're going to level the playing field so that when someone searches in Google for jobs, they could get results from all of your competitors as well as for you. And so it doesn't, in a sense, distinguish you. Is that correct? Well, I think we've seen Google in a lot of different spaces try to extend their search capabilities. You know, they have product search, but there are still great global companies like Amazon that do that better. They have travel search, but there's still many, many successful travel search companies. They do restaurant reviews, but still most of the places that people go to look up restaurant reviews are separate from Google. And I think all of those things as well are pretty transactional. For job search, what we found is that it's a very involved process. And if you're looking for a job, you'll spend weeks and maybe months trying to find the right opportunities. And in that process, people try a lot of different sites. And the sites that provide the best opportunity to get hired, that best solve the problem, that show the most jobs that you're not finding elsewhere are the ones that people choose and stick with over the long time. And so we've made investments in all of those areas that we think will be hard for Google to compete with. One of the things you say is that Indeed is an aggregator of jobs, not a jobs board like Monster and Seek. Explain to us why Indeed is different to Seek. The jobs that you find on Seek are just paid job ads. And because Seek has been so dominant historically in Australia, those ads are increasingly expensive and the prices keep going up. And as a result, fewer and fewer businesses are putting those ads on Seek. And in particular, smaller businesses rarely post their jobs there. And so as a result, if you're searching for a job, you're only seeing a small portion of the jobs that are out there, the ones that people have done paid ads for. So at Indeed, as a search engine, our goal is to get all of the jobs on to Indeed, and we make it free for any organization to post their jobs on Indeed, and we are going to try to get every job in front of job seekers, whether or not the job is from someone who's a client of ours or is paying ours. And so when you're looking for a job, you'll see more choices. You'll see jobs on Indeed that aren't available on Seek today. How do you make money? We make money when employers pay us to reach more candidates. So when you, a, someone searches for a job, they see all of those job results. And on the top are sponsored jobs. And those are jobs that employers are investing with us to urgently hire. So they try to reach, they're trying to get accountants in their Sydney office. They may invest with us to reach more people who are searching for accounting jobs. There are, at any one point in time, thousands of accounting jobs that are open in Sydney, and if you're eagerly trying to fill those positions, you want as many of the job seekers to see those as possible. They wouldn't typically see all of the jobs, and so companies invest directly with us to make sure they're reaching more relevant candidates, and that's how we earn money. So you're almost already a competitor to Google. I mean, you're the kind of the, or trying to be the Google of jobs. There definitely is a similarity. It is, um, it's right. I think the thing that is different is that Google, as a search engine, again, is um, providing just that very first step. Um, when Google launches searching for jobs, they'll match jobs that come from you know, a set of job sites that send their jobs to Google in a structured way. We've put quite a few pieces together. As a company, we are mission-focused on helping people get jobs, and so we've had to build a lot of technology and capabilities beyond that search. So someone starts by coming to Indeed and searching for the type of job that they want, but then we also provide an ability for them to upload and store their resume or CV 
Um, we use the data from that to help match them to the right jobs. We have a mechanism for one-click apply that's integrated with hundreds of um, HR software providers around the world. And we have three million businesses around the world that we work with every day that directly hire on Indeed. And many of those businesses post their jobs only to Indeed. And so, well, yes, the front end of what we do um, is job search. And that is why people come to Indeed. A lot of the things that are most important to helping someone find a job are the steps that happen after those initial search results are returned on um, a web browser screen. So Seek, in a way, is being disrupted by you and by potentially by Google. Seek has obviously enjoyed a very strong position um, in Australia um, from its beginning. It was the first major job site here. Um, but increasingly, you know, first with LinkedIn and now with Indeed and Google, um, there are a number of other alternatives. Uh, you know, hiring and the HR space is one of the largest industries in the world, and it's a space that there is an opportunity for a lot of different companies and players. And it's good for Australia, it's good for employers, and it's good for job seekers to get more of those jobs online, to have more choices of ways to hire. And, you know, there's definitely big changes that are happening in the hiring markets here in Australia. So it sounds like your model is basically freemium, that is to say the basic ad is free, but you need to pay to get it upgraded. Google's business model in general, and I presume this is what they'll do in jobs, is that everything's free and they make money from uh, sort of advertising on the search results. So in a sense, they're kind of, you're cheaper than Seek, but then Google's cheaper than you. Well, I, I would say that our approach is, you know, to get every job for free onto Indeed, and we're always going to show those jobs. I don't think there's a difference in that. I think the difference between us and Google is that we've spent a decade finding those jobs. Today, to get a job onto Google, it has to be in a very structured way, and very few jobs are on the Internet in the way that Google accepts them. Uh, we have worked relentlessly to try to bring different types of jobs online that have never been online. And one of the biggest ways we get jobs is people actually coming to Indeed who don't have a, a career website or jobs online, mostly a lot of small businesses, and they post them and manage their candidates directly on Indeed. And that's something that you won't be able to do with Google. We also have an application called JobSpotter where we pay people, um, anyone can download the app and earn money um, to take pictures of jobs that are posted on help wanted signs in store windows. Our goal is to get every job online and today our biggest competition is probably jobs that aren't online and so we're relentless at investing to get jobs online. We have more than 40 people in uh, our Sydney office that are just focused on trying to find jobs that are not online and helping people to get those jobs onto Indeed. So while Google will crawl the internet and bring a lot of jobs that they discover online, we are going a step beyond that and investing at very high levels to find jobs that aren't even online and bring them online onto Indeed for the first time. And those jobs, for the most part, are only on Indeed. And do you post seek jobs and send business their way? So we don't today. Um, Seek's made the decision that they will not put their jobs onto Indeed, um, but we have direct relationships with many of the organizations that post to Seek, and so most of those jobs today we have on Indeed as well, but we go directly to the employers to get those. And you don't charge for them unless they want to go and up the top? And we don't charge them. Unless they want to go up to the top? 
Exactly right. Yeah, we don't charge for those. Those are free. And then, again, many, many organizations do sponsor with us to reach more job seekers. And there's actually a big difference there as well. Seek charges a fixed fee to post a job. And that fee is regardless of performance. You may get the applicants you need, or you may get no applicants at all. And one of the changes we brought to this market is bringing a model where we only charge um, clients when job seekers click on their job ads and um, then, you know, are going on to apply to those jobs. And so it's completely pay for performance and organizations are able to choose the budget that they want. So they no longer need to just spend hundreds of dollars to post a job. They can do that for a lot less or size the budget based on the results that they're looking for. And so that's been a big change that has been really welcomed by employers. So how are you going in Australia? Are you disrupting Seek? We are the number two job site today in Australia. And um, we continue to grow at a very, very rapid Right here, and while Seek remains the dominant player, you know we are becoming a incredibly important site for employers that want to make sure all of their jobs are online, and for job seekers who want to see more than just the paid job ads that are on Seek and um, see all of the opportunities for employment, so they have better choices of how to shape their life. So, at your current growth rate and Seek's current growth rate, when do you become bigger than them? If we continue to grow the way we have over the last um, three years since we've opened our presence here, um, certainly in that time frame, we would be larger than Seek, but um, it's always hard to predict the future. What do you mean that time frame? You mean the next three years? Over the next three years, yes. Right. We would be larger than Seek in terms of the number of jobs, the number of job seekers that are on Indeed. Today, we have about four million job seekers that come to Indeed in Australia every month, and that's uh, close to 70% of um, the numbers that have been you know, released by Seek. And so we're gaining. That's twice the size that we were just a little over two years ago. Well, that's very interesting. We'll have to keep, uh, keep an eye on you then, won't we? Well, we are committed to Australia and uh, to helping people in Australia get jobs and uh, are going to keep doing everything we can to get every job onto Indeed and to offer more choice to employers and job seekers here in Australia. Happy birthday to Marzo Albanoni, born June the 7th, 1671. I love Italian Baroque and this bloke was one of the best. He was a rich paper merchant in Venice who had a second career as a violinist and composer. He wrote a lot of great concertos and sonatas for violin and oboe and here's his beautiful Adagio in G minor. Oh boy, I could listen to that stuff all day. In fact, the other night I nearly did.
Thanks to my wonderful team at The Constant Investor and to ISM Studios for the music. I'll be in your inbox on Saturday morning with some thoughts on the UK election, the James Comey testimony and all the other stuff that's been going on this week. Thank you.